0: All right, everybody, and let's get this party started. Um, welcome, if you're tuning in uh, for the first time, to an episode of So How'd You Get Here? I'm Angelo. I'm Tony. This is Tony. Mm-hmm. And today, right. uh, before we introduce our guest, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple accolades, um, oh, oh. introduce him. He is a stand-up comic, a writer, an impressionist. Yes. He also, um, I just recently learned, um, is a pet food tester, a professional. Wow. Must be true, because I read it on Wikipedia. All the boxes. (laughs) I would like to introduce somebody I'm a huge fan of and grew up watching religiously, Mr. Dana Carvey. How the hell are you?
1: I just want to say I love the setup here, and I love the idea of the podcast, but a little just gentle feedback. How did you get here might be kind of limiting, because I just went... I went down Melrose. Okay, (laughs) this is going to be a quick one. Okay, I got on the 101. I got off on Barnum. That's your mistake. We're almost done with the show. That's it. Then I took a left (laughs) on Hollywood Way. I went straight down. Tony got me in. Thank you very much. So that's uh, that's take one. Uh, How am I doing? Uh, uh, Really busy in a good way. You know, just busy during the pandemic. Good. Very lucky that way. A A lot of zooming. A lot of. Animation. Well, you told me after about 2 million podcasts that you decide to start your own. Well, I told my manager once yeah. there's around 2 million, I'll jump in, but I'm yeah. not going to go out and be a yeah. fucking guinea You're pig. You're not going to start them. I'm going to be the guy yeah. who's laying it all out there <laughs> with crickets and two <laughs> two listeners. It's very wise. Um, the pipeline's been, you know, but look, people are adopting right now. There is no late. It's Like right now, right. my generation, 55 to like 60, to r- like 56. the boomers. They're starting to get into it. My wife's really into it. Like, no, it, gets to, it has the process. Okay, she's got like five, ten podcasts she listens to. Right, right, right. You know, and uh, she'll listen to ten-minute ones from Trey Gowdy and stuff, or five-minute ones. And uh, it's,
2: like it's the tick, interesting. It's like
1: the TikTok version of podcasts. What's
0: the name of your <laughs> podcast? Because we'd
1: like to plug that. Uh, the, my podcast um, is called uh, Fantastic. 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 Now that was my the podcast whisper, which I was talking about on Instagram Live. The podcast whisper of my podcast is my son, who's in his twenties, so he looks at all of it very different. And it, <laughs> they talk, when I talk to him, my brain has to speed up. Like if he's on the phone with me, yeah, we could really do that. We could go down that. That'd be really cool, you know. And I also noticed that uh, when he vapes, he's only positive which is oh, really interesting. Yeah. Hey, Mom and I are thinking of going to Tahoe. Oh, that'd be really cool. You could go up there. You <laughs> could rent an Airbnb, but you could water ski or get a ski boat or whatever. I'm thinking of getting a jean jacket. Oh, you could rock anything with with a jean jacket. He was super positive vape guy. Um, so, anyway, I uh, well, podcasting. Yeah, so this is great what you guys are doing. Appreciate Appreciate being you being here. You have a very specific brand, which I've said is nice. Yeah. How'd you get here? And uh, I always felt that as a kid because I had little hidden dreams about being in show business, and someone would be on Merv Griffin or Johnny, and there'd be a little biographical thing. Well, then I started singing, and then RCA gave me a record deal. Whoa, 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 whoa. what happened? I wanted like, literally, how do you get there? That's
0: what this is. Like, We understand Mm -hmm. what it is once you've probably made it, and you start to blow up, and we can read about that, but what about what about before that, when you slept on a friend's couch, or had to borrow money from your parents, or maybe move back in, or sleep in your car, or you got fired? Like, give us the uh, give us the good stuff. And what was that
2: age group? Like, you were like, was it high school Were you already doing impressions Like you wanted no, to stand up? I started
1: uh, um, basically. I had three older brothers, a younger sister, all packed together. So it's nineteen sixty three or four. Uh, the we had the the real story is we had a LP. From Caller's Encyclopedia. Okay. Review of the year. So we could play it over and over again. And the Beatles were being interviewed on the very end of it. You just you could hear them talking and talking and talking. So I'm eight or nine, ten. And then a little while later I realized, just sitting around with my brothers on a rainy day, that I could still, you know, I, I was able to do the voice. You know, Ed, we're doing the best we can, Ed. Yeah. So that was like revolutionary. Wait a minute. What the fuck? The little brother just, you know, he's, I was going to beat him up. He's doing Paul McCartney. I was going to beat him up and give him a wedgie, but what's he doing? So that was the first time I thought I could alter my voice. And then I became. And make people laugh. like And, and, and
2: get the approval of your older brothers. Oh, yeah. I went, yeah. Up,
1: I went up to my mom right. in the morning. Hey, mom, do you think you could make me some pancakes? You know, <laughs> wow, It's
3: so talented. Oh, my God.
1: And you got the pancakes, right? Well, pancakes were rough because my dad had this ego about being the pancake guy on weekend mornings. But he would pour like an inch of oil in the pan and get it all bubbly. So the first two or three batches, he called them the crispies because they were just with bubbled soaking hot oil. And then he decided that Dane, me, oh, oh, Jesus Christ. This is my best impression of my dad. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ, Dane loves the Krispies. So he put this mound of gooey, and we couldn't afford maple syrup. We had caro syrup because it was cheaper, the white stuff with ants around it. It's (laughs) protein, you little (laughs) shit. So uh, anyway, I started in the 60s just casually thinking I could maybe be in show business. And by the time I was in fifth grade, what do you want to do with your life? And I wrote down, be a comedian and make 100000 a year. Well, lofty goals in 1965. 19- missed it 16- by five. that much. Yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> overshot it. Added a couple of zeros. <laughs> <laughs> oh. but, Quit bragging. Uh, <laughs> dreams coming true. It's been a rut, but it took a while. I um, was very introverted. I had years where I was extroverted. Maybe you guys can relate to that. Yeah. Like fifth grade, I was the cool kid. Seventh grade, I was dormant, that kind of stuff. Right um in seventh grade these were the messages i was getting from the universe in seventh grade i thought it was too much to run for president but i ran for secretary of the class and so the gymnasium is packed this is baby boomer time like 600 kids i'm gonna go out really scared and give a speech running for secretary So, so it's like a gig to me so the first thing i did was i taped together like Tons of eight by ten lined paper. You know, I taped them all together and rolled them up. So I had like them a scroll, yeah. So I <laughs> okay. had them on the top of the podium, and I said, I, I won't, I only have a few remarks to make. And then I pushed it, and it unrolled off this oh. so That was my first laugh. And you, oh, you got him, you got him with the laugh. And then it was Tierra Linda TL was the name of the school. You know, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm a TL again. And I promise more. Drinking fountains. That was my platform. <laughs> you, you run won't. on more.
0: You, your platform was more drinking fountains.
1: You will never go, go more than ten feet. Yes. There won't be thirst in my time. Did you do a dance like Napoleon Dynamite on stage or anything? Not that time. But okay. But, okay. but I did okay. get laughed. And okay. then um, so then I went along like that. I got into distance running in high school. So my father was a track coach. Okay. I was slight, so we had a really great team, and I had a lot of friends that had great sense of humor. But as a junior, one of the coaches' car broke down a big banquet on the campus with all the teams are there and all the parents. Hey, whatever's car broke down, will you talk about the junior varsity cross-country team? Ask me five minutes before. So I went up, and then I realized I'd had little impressions of certain Right guys on the team. Jeff Green would always say, if I could only get my form down. That was his thing. He was horrible. <laughs> but I need to get my form. So I did that and got big laughs. Uh, so that was another message to me. But still tried to go to an acting class way too shy. Did you ever do drama? like No, no I could, couldn't. No, it was too scary. So it was
2: impressions around your friends, family, people that thought you were Characters. Yeah.
1: So then in junior junior high it became Junior, no, um, junior in high school. No, this, then it became junior college years. Oh, junior college. Yeah. We all went to junior college. I didn't know anyone who went to a... A, a, a reg- four-year school, yeah. No, it was insane. Yeah. It was cheap. And then my friends started smoking pot, and I'd be back of the, back of the Volkswagen bu- bug, and I would be riffing. You know, I had, like, a Star Trek thing, or I had a John Wayne impression. Just goofy yeah. stuff. And then I'd be normal. No one ever said to me, you should be in comedy. It wasn't that obvious, you know. Um, so then... I just moved out at age 20 into a shithole near the airport in San Francisco because my brother had a room uh, in a duplex. My rent was $58. It came with a water bed. (laughs) It came with the water bed? Yeah. 58 steel. Yeah, because my brother and his friend, Bob Shug, they lived in the other room. So they paid like $25 a month. They, They worked at a steakhouse during the day, and they would steal baked potatoes. And then we would get tuna pies from Safeway, 25 cents with the crust on top. And, you know, so we, we were living, living large, right near the airport. Living the dream. And we literally, in Wayne's world, we went to the airport, and we would sit on the hood of the car. We did that, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, we did it right down the runway, and we had It's It's, these things called It's It's, which was giant cholesterol bombs of ice cream. And, <laughs> so at that point, I was just playing a lot of risk, smoking pot, and I took a night class at San Francisco State, you know. I got out of there, and I knew I was living cheap enough. I was a busboy at the Holiday Inn um, and then a waiter at that time. And frequently enough, when I was a room service busboy, I waited on the Jackson family for a week. I, wow. Yes. Michael and uh, would always get raw carrots before his show, and I'd go to the room, and I'd bring him his raw carrots. Huh. And he would be sitting and just staring into the mirror. And I, I remember one time. So this I know, is like
2: kid Michael, though.
1: Yeah, this is Michael as a teenager. And and, uh, this little, cute little girl was jumping up and down on the bed all the time. Janet. And I said, Janet, don't do that. And she said, Miss Jackson, if you please. So that's where that came from. (laughs) With Michael, I just said, you could do a little something. You're a very handsome guy, but you could maybe do a little bit. I regret that to this day. (laughs) I waited on little Richard. He opened the door. He was stark naked. Have you been to see the show? (laughs) I waited on Richard Pryor, gave him a Denver Omelette. I waited on George Carlin. Um, Anyone who played this little Was this the
2: Waldorf Astoria of San Francisco? Like, where
1: were you? There was a 3,000-seat theater called the Circle Star Theater, 20 miles south of San Francisco on the peninsula. And that's where all these people would play. Got it. You know, I saw Don Rickles there uh, just as a kid. And it was the most exciting thing ever. And the thing I always remember, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, was when the lights go down, do, 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 the tympani drum, and now star ba ba ba, right. Don Rickles, and then watching this person you'd seen on television animated in three dimensions walking out. You know, the night I saw it, Ed Sullivan was in the audience, Ooh. ancient Ed, and so Rickles just ripped him. I mean, it was incredibly Rickles hilarious. was the best. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. You're yeah. back. Ed, wake up. The show's on. Here's some ice. You know. I
0: grew up watching him and then Foster Brooks and then, Demon. like, I love those guys. Yeah. Just the roasts that they would do. The, the,
1: the old, those old-fashioned yeah. comedians and, uh, you know, he just beat him up and then they brought a birthday cake out and brought Ed Sullivan up and he just said, Don Rickles, you can kiss my ass. And I, was, I remember that. So I'm like 20, 21. But so, still no inclination of, like, I want to be that guy on stage. Yes, but hidden and secret. Got
0: it. So you know that you have, like, you're working on it secretly, but you're also seeing it can be done as a profession, and you're just trying to make that leap.
1: Yeah, it seemed like outer space, like trying to be an alien or get on the moon or be president of the United States. But what happened was I didn't know anything about it, and I saw something in the local paper, San Francisco Chronicle, and in the entertainment section. So it was a little article about stand-up comedy um, at in Berkeley— At uh, the La Salamandra Cafe. And it's Saturday night, you know. And I didn't even, I skipped San Francisco. I got two friends with me. Let's go over there to the comedy show. So we went over to Telegraph Avenue, went into this hippie bakery dive. And in the back, there was a chalkboard $1 cover. 20 people in the audience, maybe. We're just sitting there. Uh, Comedians are coming up that aren't famous. And I know some of them. Even to this day, Mark Miller, and there was a guy named Mitch Krug, and they were just uh, good at that time, but not intimidating. So I took a paper out of my pocket or a napkin, started making notes of little bits that I would do, um, thinking... Cause once they, the
0: napkin and the paper comes out, you're in. Yeah, once you're, you're writing on, it down, um, it's
1: yeah. too late. Well, because they said after the show, at 11, you can do open mic. Oh. I didn't even know that was going to exist. So then I had a couple beers, so I was like... <laughs> and I'm waiting, and then... Then this guy comes up, and he's sort of like, whoa, uh, what's this? <laughs> and he's moving around the stage. He's so confident, and he seems to be completely spontaneous. Um, he's not really even on mic a lot. And I'm like, so then I put, I folded up the napkin and put it in my pocket. Because I thought, oh, is this an open mic guy or a bikini- no? This was part of the little oh, show. Okay. He's, he's getting paid two dollars. Okay. He's this far from an open mic guy, right? Right. right so right. I put the napkin back in my pocket, going, hmm, ha, uh, huh, okay, maybe there's a lot of this guy. It was Robin Williams. Jeez. So Robin Williams <laughs> was the two dollar guy. He was a two dollar. Oh look, and then he just had stuff like he had a beret and he hold it up. Oh, for those of you on acid, this is a frisbee. <laughs> oh, don't be afraid. So. They said, I went up afterwards and I bombed, but I, every time my things would bomb, because there's like four people there, I would just say, moving right along. Somehow it came out funny. The guy said, do you want to come back and just be the MC?" He couldn't believe it was my first time. Yeah. So him saying that to me at that time was about as high as I'd ever been, because I'd I harbored this thing I wanted to do from age nine, and it just trundled along. But no one grabbed me by the lapel and said, damn it, kid, you belong in show business. You right. know? I even had a girlfriend who I told her about. It. She goes, really? You know, we broke <laughs> you're, up. You're, that you're, doesn't help the relationship. You're, you're <laughs> not but my wife. You're not that funny. But my wife grew to love what I do. No, that one was not the one I Do you heard. find that that's actually... I, <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? You? On
0: television? No, go but ahead. But is that... That seems to be more of the common thing, where no one grabs you and says you're gonna, you're it. It's no. mostly people working really hard, getting a few little nuggets of hope.
2: Yes, and I oh, that one person being like, the, like the
1: hey, you want to MC? You're pretty funny. You might have something. Paul Miles was his name, and uh, so I came back two weeks later, and I brought the Peninsula, just middle class white kids, suburban kids, never been anywhere. So basically like 15 friends of friends because it was ma- a guy's going to do comedy from San Carlos? It was like in Berkeley? Count me in. So we, you know, I, I walked first through the front door, and the chalkboard was there, and it, it was Saturday. So it was like, I guess it was a one or it was $2 in chalk. And the guy next to the chalkboard, who was kind of part of the show, he looked up, saw all these suburban kids coming in dressed all nice, and I saw him quickly erase it and put $3. Ah. Smart, smart. <laughs>
3: I That's why that. it's in shock. <laughs> it's
1: in shock. It's adjustable. So then I started on the road of not doing well, being nervous, occasionally having a good night. I found my way to San Francisco to the Holy City Zoo, which was a mainstay. There was no comedy clubs. But oh. This was a music club. But on Tuesday night, you'd have stand-up. And Robin was always the guy floating above everybody at this other level, kind of like a guy who studied Shakespeare and then decided – to be a stand-up. Yeah. So he married those two things and created this incredible.
2: But when you saw him live, were you like, I don't know if I can do what he does?
1: Oh, oh I was completely intimidated yeah. by him. His confidence, you know, like Eddie Murphy at 20. Um, Robin, right then, I think he was 25 or 6. Really confident. Really confident. At least the way he appeared to me right. on stage. I found I got to know him a lot better over the years. Um. Was his stage
2: persona s- similar in real life, or was he not as on all the time? Oh,
1: no. He could be very, very shy and quiet. Oh, okay. oh yeah. And very uh, self-deprecating, really hard on himself, you know, uh, and very, uh, very vulnerable, mm-hmm. you know. I really got to know him a lot better. I was so intimidated by him. We were like two batteries that repelled. I could not really even – he was too much magic to me. Yeah. Wow. You know, and I never – the only thing he did drive me, because then he went to L.A. pretty quickly – and then he's on Mork and Mindy and all this, you know. Yeah,
0: so I got to work with, my best friend worked with Gary up until he had passed away, and mm. he told me the, the uh, Mork and Mindy story. Mm-hmm. It was actually Happy Days, and they needed a character that could square off with Fonz. And yeah, and his son was like, "Well, I really want to see aliens. I would, I would like the show more <laughs> if there was an alien." And he goes, "Really, aliens?
3: <laughs> aliens? Really? That's what <laughs> you <laughs> want?
0: <laughs> uh, all what right. are you gonna
3: do with an alien?" <laughs> exactly.
0: So he got a standing ovation. He mm-hmm. guess he did the whole interview on his head, like his before the show. His audition, yeah. And then he got a. F- I think Gary got a phone call that before the first episode. That episode was done. Yeah, execs called and said, T- "Who is this guy?" Right. And do you have a series written for him? And he went, yeah, of course I do. Talk to you next week. Hangs up and goes, we got to ride a pilot. (laughs) I mean, and he just just took off from like, he always seemed to have like stripper glitter just coming out of his, out of his.
1: Well, it was, it was just such an exotic choice. When he came into the comedy store, you'd see guys with material and then he was like an improv player. He would just go. Uh, suddenly, he's in the audience. Oh look! Oh hey! Oh needs hair. Whatever. It was just all this the 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 the, the conceit of it of a Shakespearean actor with no material hmm. coming out. And over time, you saw his, he had his tricks like all of us. Yeah. You know, but uh, that was hard to follow and hard to then go up and be like, okay. How you doing, everybody? And he's like right away, oh, look, a spaceship. Oh, oh come <laughs> in, Captain. Come in, Captain.
3: <laughs> you know,
1: so that he was very inspiring. And for a while, I tried to be him. And uh, this is in the 70s. You know, I, I had a trunk with props for, for a year. Wait, you were
2: the first carrot top?
1: <laughs> well, I had little glasses. <laughs> I was so scared. And my confidence was so low from being beaten up literally and figuratively from my childhood. And wow. so insecure. Uh, Dude, I never that. had a girlfriend. You know and uh, the one you did have didn't think you were funny. Yeah, you're gonna go do that, huh? Yeah, oh, that's good, great. Yeah, you're funny, all right. <laughs> good luck.
0: Did you send her a picture <laughs> of your first residual? That
3: was
1: my mother. Oh, that was your <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom was a big fan of uh, all her kids. My brother became a musician, and I would open for his band. This is in because you
0: grew up playing drums, right? I read that you got a drum kit pretty, pretty young.
1: Yes, uh, I asked, well, initially. Couldn't get one. So I had a Hardy Boys book. That was my uh, snare drum. Huh. And we had a clothes hamper. We, initially, we were into the, my brother who I, he was, we shared a room, bunk beds. He bought a guitar for a dollar. I guess it had two strings on it. And I would kick the clothes hamper for my kick drum, but I needed drumsticks. Mm. So we started shoplifting. So we didn't have any money. So we were just, I was stealing on Laurel Avenue in San Carlos from a drum store called hearts drums. I was on occasion very cleverly getting out of there with a couple of drumsticks flash 25, no 30 years later, I'm at the four seasons in Manhattan and suddenly I'm at a table with the grateful dead and Mickey Hart is there and he starts talking about his past. Hey Mickey, very affable guy. And, uh, I go, wait a minute, you you own Hearts drums on Laurel? Yeah, me and my dad, 65 to 67. Oh. I owe you a couple of well, dollars. Had, I handed him a 20 and said, <laughs> you know, it was like, yeah, I, I harvested that store. He goes, yeah. I was yeah. going to say,
0: you were incriminating yourself,
1: but you've made But it. he was you've like, we it. would do the books at the end of the month and everything. We go, there's like. 40 drumsticks were not accounted for. <laughs> There's no – the ledger. So they hired a separate accountant. He had a quick nervous breakdown and then joined Grateful Dead. No, he didn't have nervous breakdown. <laughs> but so the um, – then I evolved to – I had a, a plastic snare drum begging my parents. And my cousin, who was kind of a muscly guy, he was 10 years old, just broke it in a second. But next door was a guy who owned a music store. And so there was – they were going to throw out this drum set. But my dad paid like 20 bucks, So I got a drum set at age 14. And I did play in garage bands, and that was, you know, my thing.
0: And are you? Ju- and at that point, is that helping or conflicting with the, the part of you that's like, I still think I maybe want to do, com- not m- really music. Mm. I feel is a little more acceptable maybe right. for parents oh, versus yeah. stand up yeah, comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because there always be like, where did we go
1: wrong? I had no fear of uh, the drum thing. That even wasn't really my dream compared to the comedy. But it was just super fun, and to get into. A small room with someone on bass and someone on, on guitar. My mm-hmm. brother got better and jamming and stuff. It's really just fun. I would love to do it to this day. You know, just too got busy.
0: Drum kit right over there.
1: Uh, that's yeah. a biggie. That's yeah. a big one.
0: Help yourself right
1: after. <laughs> so anyway, and then I got on Saturday Night Live. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a long... How much time have we got? As
0: much as you want, sir. we we'll right. tomorrow. Th- you are the only person here today. Mm.
1: On purpose. Okay, on purpose. so... <laughs> So, uh, so, I'm basically, uh, um, I'm 20, then 21 when I started doing this. Still uh, just emceeing? Emceeing, and then would go open mic to the, you know, get spots at Holy City Zoo. And occasionally, I'd have a good set, and then I'd bomb a lot.
2: Were you doing these impressions,
1: these, these uh, um,
2: the Beatles? And, and, those
1: and characters. Yeah. You know, I uh, was looking, I was trying to buy material. I didn't know how to write material. So, like, there was this uh, cologne that on the back of it, it said something funny. So I, I I kept the box, and I held it up. And Jovan, and I just read what it said with sort of a funny attitude, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a box of Petridge Farm, and I did a little New Hampshire guy, Petridge Farm. Week, <laughs> and I said that made the ingredients really poisonous or something. <laughs> um, I got some yellow, just some Crazy sunglasses, and I did a agent from L.A. Dana, babe, how are you? <laughs> but I was so scared to become a character, like I could do it for a second, but then I would retreat back. Right. I just was so fledgling and so nervous, with no background, no knowledge, but. I got better over time, and then in Which 1977... sounds like
0: you're finding, you're, like, you're seeing what works and then keeping it and throwing away what doesn't yeah,
1: work. Yeah, I'm doing, yes, exactly. I mean, if you, there are comedians who will, and back in the day, there'd be people, like, they'd have bits that weren't working,
3: and we're they, just wouldn't, r- Im- they wouldn't improve them,
1: yeah. and they wouldn't jettison them. <laughs> so it's like game over. So there's a stand-up comedy competition that still goes on to this day, but it was huge in San Francisco in the 70s. And so I jo- I went into that in 1977. And there were rounds, and there were clubs you would go to, and it goes on for weeks. And there's the quarterfinals and the semifinals. So I was getting more kind of quality stage time than I'd ever gotten. So I was getting better as I went along. And then I managed to make the final. So of like 60 comedians, it was the final five. Mm. But I needed 15. I only had 10.
2: <laughs> so... So, so those are really six, six, long jokes.
1: Well, yeah. Oh,
0: you mean amount of jokes? Amount well, of time. My time as a stand
1: up, I had like ten minutes of yeah. all the best things throwing them out there.
0: But you had to go fifteen was your for, set. for
1: the final Got they it. required fifteen. So I came up with this bit that was kind of rhythmic, I think influenced by Steve Martin. It was a singles bar kind of guy. What do you do? You work, you go to school, or what? And then it's like, Oh, well, how long were you behind bars? <laughs> Well you know what? We have a lot in common. You went you behind bars, I hang out at bars. Hey, tiny world. You know. Said better than what I just said it. But it became a rhythmic character performance and sorry, sorry, rhythmic character performance performance. Uh we are uh, climbing out of two hundred feet. We're having a little bit of sputter in the left engine, but we're gonna continue on anyway. (laughs)
0: Why is that light coming on? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, We have some heat uh, issues up here. Uh, We're going to circle around.
0: (laughs) The plane's on fire. Um, (laughs) Three, two, one. All right, we're clear. Go ahead. We're clear. Um,
1: So anyway, so I did that, and because the favorite, Mark McCollum, who's a very good impressionist with a guitar, went overtime, he was out. I went on third, which is the best out of five that you can get warmed up but not and so I won by like three hundredths of a point. There were judges and everything, you know. Were the judges
2: f- famous people?
1: Um, I'm not yeah, – they might have been. I, I, there was also –
2: Or are they cl- comedy club owners from all
1: over the that, country That or kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a picture that exists of me standing there at age 22, just to have won that thing, which levitated me to the moon. And behind me is Mort Saul and Robin Williams. And then they came up and presented the check with me, and then 35 years later, whatever it was, Mortzall moved to Marin County, where I have a house where there's a small theater, and Robin moved back up there the last five years of his life. So the three of us would get together, and so anyway, one of those kismity things. But winning that was huge. But there still was no comedy clubs, no way to make money. I was doing another year at San Francisco State, just phoning it in, literally. Does (laughs) it get
2: you representation? Like, how did it work back then? No.
1: Nothing. Nothing. Just nothing.
2: Just a check. (laughs) 500 bucks. I bought a guitar,
1: I think yeah yeah and a lot of weed Quite, right. i i never was that into the weed uh, okay but 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 I, there was a point where i just like i'm anxious and paranoid what if yeah you know. so
0: question on like <laughs> but i did smoke it occasionally the nerves and the same thing like that was the same for me starting dance like terrified but always mm-hmm. wanted to do it um did you find small things like that where you victories where you won a contest you got some money yeah that actually helped boost confidence or did it have nothing to do with that And you had to keep working something else.
1: It did boost the confidence, but what I found out later, like you'd get gigs that were not official comedy clubs. So I'm suddenly I'm in a basement. I'm playing. There's a little stage. Suddenly I'm with other comedians. We're the comedy show during dinner. So I'm I'm playing to people who are talking and facing away. Right, not paying attention to you and waiters. (laughs) Yeah, but bombing and then feeling bad. Later on, I. I realized when I got up to bat in a normal like club, the audience wasn't drunk, they're facing me. They wanted to be there to laugh. A lot easier. But what happened was in 78, there were no comedy clubs, no way to leverage that anything. I finished college just phoning it in. It was San Francisco State at those days. You know, I literally would just write the term paper during the class (laughs) and say, Typewriter broken. (laughs) Oh, you got to (laughs) be. I mean, at that point, after this, okay, I'm going to go down this path after I won that comedy competition. But that year, the only thing that was open was opening for bands. Huh. So I have 50 bucks at the old Waldorf, 600-seater. I open for Todd Rundgren. I open for Robert Palmer. And they're having
0: you do a 10-minute set,
1: five-minute yeah. set? Yeah, your hero will be here in a second, 10 minutes. But please welcome uh, Dana Garneau. <laughs> <laughs> I'd walk out, boo, fuck you. Literally, the whole people in front, fuck you. <laughs> just, it was just, I'd sit on the amp and just take the heat, you know. Um, but I, you know, this I had a few voices I could survive, but feeling bad a lot. That, yeah. You know, my big work a day thing was Jimmy Stewart as a waiter back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I take your order? Yeah. Well, 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 I, well, I you. Well, when are you going to order? I I got ten other tables here now. Really. <laughs> well, what, what, what? what, 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 what I I've, I said the specials to you a half hour ago. What? <laughs> Well, fuck you too. <laughs> and that never didn't I work. Wish I, could say, <laughs> I wish I could say that. To yeah. You probably yeah, you <laughs> yeah. just have it on a. Yeah. Yeah, I'll record it for Perfect. you. Perfect. It's a friend of mine. It's a friend of mine. Well, yeah. I'm not saying it. Yeah. He's saying yeah. it. Fuck you too. <laughs> so then um, comedy clubs started to be built. There mm-hmm. was a revolution and a renaissance in comedy. Because this you, early 80s? No, this is 79. 79. Okay. Because you had. Robin was exploding.
2: Well, I was just gonna ask you about Robin real quick. So sure. he's he's on Mork and Mindy yeah. in LA. But
1: coming back and forth. So all you the never time. had any
2: inkling like, oh, maybe I should go to LA.
1: Maybe that's where it's happening. Did that not cross your mind? Yeah, it did. And it, it comes up pretty quickly in the story. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry.
0: Way to interrupt him,
1: Tony. Sorry, sorry. No, no, not at all. All the, right, this story's ruined. This, this is it. like is it? Yeah. This story, Thanks for
0: coming. Appreciate
2: you. I've often
1: thought <laughs> yeah. of this story uh as a, a book. Okay. Just this, not an autobiography, but just basically from maybe the stand-up comedy comedy from '76 to '86. Okay,
2: because
1: that was that ten years. So now we're at three years into it, and uh, the clubs are being built. So there's a there's a laundromat you know, on the Hate Hate Ashbury in the Hate <laughs> ha- that they convert into a small comedy club. I learned later that small rooms were really really good for me. Mm-hmm. As I got more famous, I'm playing these giant rooms. And doing all these characters and attitudes, and I'm leaning and pushing and screaming. Then when I came back, I took comedy with my sons. We play in these small rooms. I go, it's a different sport. Mm -hmm. It's like podcasting. I can be subtle. I can be weird. So anyway, so they're building. And this room in particular became my home. This room is where I developed. Paula Poundstone came through there, developed a lot. She came from Boston. Bobcat Goldthwait. Robin would play in there.
0: And Paula was friends with your wife, Correct.
1: Paula Poundstone, well, my wife and I were together but not married. We met Paula Poundstone, loved her, brilliant comedian, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it, just outrageous improviser and it, her whole vibe and everything. And so we uh, – she never had any money, so we had rented a two-bedroom house on Cabrillo Street off Golden Gate Park. Mm-hmm. So we, we had her live with us. Oh, and, that's um, nice of you. I know, and we had paid a rent. I was working a little bit at that point, a little bit. I played clubs that were just open, Laughs Unlimited in Sacramento. And they go, can you headline? I go, I'll try. So then I got a, I had my guitar. <laughs> so try. then I'm going to fill material with the guitar. I'm going to do everything I can to find my way to 45 minutes. That's innocent times. Meanwhile, the other cafe was, it'll, it happened gradually over time. What's where Church Lady came from. Chopping broccoli came from because you. Do, I would started to do seven shows in a row with a not drunk audience, a hippie audience, kind of educated. There was a giant picture window out on the street, so people would walk by and the whole audience could see them. So then I'm improvising with that guy, you know. Nice. So it's it's yeah. really developing me. The other cafe in San Francisco. So then is um, that still in existence? No. No. But it's funny, we well, want to talk about a twilight zone. So my son, and I guess his girlfriend at the time, we were going around San Francisco. So we go to the Hate, And we go into where the other cafe is. Now it's back to something else. I don't know if it's a laundromat or another type of cafe, not a comedy club. And it was almost like Rod Taylor and the Time Machine. Because I remember the first time I saw my wife, I was at one side of the club. She, was, she had come in, and we both remember the exact second our eyes met. So I was able – no one was in the place. I said, your mom was here, and I was over here occupying this space 30-some years – or 30 years later, whatever later. And that was where we our eyes first met. And she had never been to a comedy club. Oh. And that's where we met. Huh. But her and her friends were such fans of mine, they had T-shirts made that said uh, – no, the T-shirt was, uh, <laughs> what do you do? You work, you go to school, or what? And then on the back it said "Tiny, tiny world." Yeah. Mm. So, so that was, that was that. First so you married
2: stanza. a fan. Interesting. Well, let me get that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, no, she was a, uh, uh, yeah. Well, she just laughed. We'd go to her parents' house. They were upstairs. One was Irish. One was Dutch. And they would just hear murmur, murmur, murmur. And then she'd laugh, laugh, laugh. You know, incredible sense of humor. So there was uh. Oh, pots! Can I ask one question? Sure, from, sure. Yeah. So, feel free to s- interrupt me. I'm just going. Well, around. I don't want to. you yeah, stuff. If people want to hear you, not us. Um, but if you're curious,
0: um, um, more detail. What is your preferred now? Having gone the whole gambit, do you prefer still small room, fifteen minute set, or do you like forum, two hour set,
1: or whatever? Like oh, that whole scale. What, which? What's your personal taste right now? My personal taste would be podcasts. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah,
0: that's how we got him. That's how we got that's him. That's how we got him right here. Um,
1: a lot of when you when you get to be a name and you're traveling, a lot of it is you, you just like say I had a corporate date for a ton of money in Orlando. So just say I'm not in this case flying private, but you get to the airport. So it's like twelve hours to get to the hotel room in Orlando of just that slog with everything all considered, and then you wait for the show. And then you do the show, and they're all talking and drinking. There's a gigantic room with screens. And you do a meet and greet afterwards, sweating. I got you in a headlock. It's fine, <laughs> you know, with good money. Next day you get up early, you know, you're just exhausted, and then you fly back. And over time, you don't even remember the show. Hmm. It's irrelevant. So to me, if you're a, what I call a, a prosecuting attorney, stand-up, a plaintiff, so you're somebody that generally you're on your toes with the audience going. You know, it's not like Bill Burr is like a very, he could really work a big room. Yeah, right. we saw him at you the know, forum. Here yeah. Ago. These fucking guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know what drives me nuts? Meet mates. The fuck? <laughs> Get a car. Fucking think, our around. So it's like, and he's brilliant. You know, great. You know, I had dinner with him at Koi. Yeah. During the pandemic in the secret room. Yeah. <laughs> Shh. We do not repeat that. <laughs> um, so those, those kinds of people. I think Chris Rock. You know, is very powerful. But for me, when I'm just going, you know, I'm trying to do, you know, Biden or something. Here's the deal, folks. You know, it's the forum. You know, can't hear me. So then you have to. So I like the smaller rooms. Gotcha. For stand-up, uh, yeah, like a like a, a hundred-seater with low ceilings like, powerful, you know.
0: Nice. It feels more intimate, too, it sounds like, which is more your brand of what you want to do.
1: I'm trying to. Kick out rhythms and get and, and repeat them and get people infected by them because that's what I liked in high school and college. You know, I like those kind of ideas that um, if someone walked into the room at a given point, they wouldn't know why everyone was laughing. Ah. So, the, what I what I did naturally, I think most comedians do naturally, even before they learn how to do stand up, is repeat a lot. So you, you're doing the water polo coach impression, then you're doing it again, and then you're back. You're going and you keep going. You know. Um, so that's what I like to do, and that's good in a small room. Right. right makes sense. Makes that makes sense. sense. All right.
2: So back to 1978. Sorry. It's blowing up. 79, 79. I'm getting in the
1: club. I'm getting, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I had one. There was another little club called Mustard Seed Cafe. This is like late 78, 79. This is a little tiny tuss, taste of Hollywood. Um, so that was 50 seaters downstairs. No drinking. Just tables. So George Slaughter, who invented Laugh-In, his he and his people were gonna do a new laugh in revival, which Robin Williams ended up being on. And he came to San Francisco to look for more talent. I don't think I knew he was there. I had a Star Trek bit, a couple things were working. And so for me at that time I killed. It's like, whoa. And then all of a sudden, well, come down to LA, son. Let's come down and we'll hang out. I didn't even know what that meant. So it's like for two weeks I'm nervous. I've got to go to L.A. to meet with George Slaughter about being on the new Laugh-In. I'm 23, and I remember even then my mom or something or me, we I bought a corduroy suit. And <laughs> I wore, wore, wore T-shirts, but I had a – a corduroy suit with a corduroy. I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. It was sweating. I'm in L.A. I'm sweating this like, corduroy like, suit. It's July.
2: I had a vest
1: corduroy, <laughs> a corduroy jacket, desert boots. Like, I go into screamed the... screamed new guy. Got it. I go into the interview, and there's a few uh, women, people there, his sidekick, co-producer, whatever. I thought it was like a serious interview for a job at IBM or something. So I didn't do any shtick. I was just serious and shy. I didn't have any idea. The, the girlfriend I had at the time, who was uh, like five foot 10, the and, same one who didn't and, think you were funny. No, this one was OK. She's, uh, her name was Missy. She was Russian. Anyway, she knew a lot of Hollywood people. All of a sudden, I'm in L.A. I go to George Slaughter. That goes poorly. I have a spot at the comedy store. The, the one was it was in Westwood. I'm really nervous. It's packed, and I've got a spot. And I follow a guy, and I didn't know what to do when it wasn't going right, where you just forget the material, start working the crowd. Epic bomb. I mean, epic, drenched straight through, dead silence. Then I have to get off the stage. I'm in a booth near the stage. The girlfriend at the time is sitting there. I'm humiliated. I sit down next to her, unless I imagine it. She's scooched over. Just a little bit Ooh, away from you. Yeah. Then they put up Kid Dynamite, JJ. Who was the sitcom? Oh, uh, yeah, JJ Walker. JJ Walker. Yeah. They put him up so that because I was so bad, I thought they thought that I would walk the room, that I, I that people would just leave. leave. I can't just leave. Yeah. If that's the best you've got, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. And then he went up and he said, "Watch how it's done, kid." Ouch. Yeah. No. So that was like that was rough. So then I go back to San Francisco. And I'm doing the clubs. And then my confidence is building. And I'm getting a bit of a following at the, at the other cafe. And I'm starting to get better and better and better. Um, some NBC people came up and sort of were looking around again. So they put me on camera just riffing. And at that time, I kind of had a teen idly look a little bit. You know, I looked like uh, some Sean Cassidy a little bit. Uh-huh. So I wasn't sure what they wanted me for. But they offered me a deal. So I'm 25. We're gonna give you fifty thousand dollar advance against pilots that you may do for us. Come to Hollywood, you'll be signed by NBC. So that blew my mind. So is that
2: the equivalent to, to a today like a holding deal that they yeah. give like
1: actors and stuff? Yeah, but for me at the time, fifty thousand fucking smack of room. Might as well be
2: five million. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so my brother was a fledgling musician guy. We moved down together. And we were really fit. We were still very into running. We were like super tan. We wear those little fluorescent shorts with our shirts off, <laughs> and we were super tan. By the
2: way, we're gonna pull up that picture when you say
0: that on the
1: podcast of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we didn't. We moved right into West Hollywood. We didn't know where we were, and we would run around the neighborhood. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So it was fine. Getting deals all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We bought a, a better drum set, recording equipment. Put it in the garage. We had a little duplex on Gardner Street, and we recorded stuff. So then in that year they asked me to do stuff and I was terrible. I did a, they said, Oh, you're going to be on the Marie Osmond show variety show. I am. Yes. <laughs> so I was on the Marie Osmond show for a few episodes and um, doing what sketches. Yeah. We, I had this rubber suit on and we were called the tumbling nights and we would tumble around and Gavin McLeod was uh, the host and I would, they were just trying to find something for me to do. So she was up in front of, it was TV land down there. It was a, you know, the studio from Hollywood. She was incredibly nice. So they had some shtick where I interrupt her and I improvise. We're friends. We've had coffee. And then they had to cut tape. Well, she's Mormon. She doesn't drink coffee. So it's like, whoa, I'm sorry. You know, it's like, and then uh, she's up there doing a duet with Jeff Conway from Taxi, I think.
2: Did he pass away? The one that was so. also in Greece, that guy?
1: I think so. Yeah. Anyway. Look it up right now. They were, they were. Did a song and then they were kissing and then all the brothers came in, Marie, Marie, and they kept making out. I remember that was really weird. <laughs> Sounds weird, <laughs>
3: Marie. What so are you this doing? is like
1: what 1980? 80.
0: Yeah. Yes. Passed away unfortunately in 2011.
1: Yes, but he was. Yeah, he sang great. And um, anyway, so then I did that and all of a sudden, in the meantime, I'm going to the improv and bombing. They had me an 805 set, like with three industry people. Norman Lear loved it, playing to dead silence. So that was the other. Why
2: do you think your comedy was hilarious in San Francisco and L.A. wasn't like wasn't
1: the same material? Well, at that point in San Francisco, I would say the other cafe, mm-hmm. I was packing the weekend, se- just 70 seats. People were requesting stuff. I was starting to develop reoccurring things. OK, so they're all like, yeah, you know, then I would go to just walk into the improv at 805 on a Tuesday. It's. Dead and no one's even in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then it was just like I didn't know what to. Right. But um. But eventually they had a piano. I did chop broccoli there. Nice. You know? Um. So then I get a call. Fred Silverman, head of NBC, wants you to go to New York and play Mickey Rooney's grandson in a sitcom called One of the Boys. So um. So I get on a plane. Nathan Lane had auditioned in L.A. to play the roommate. We were going to be. At, we're in college, and I bring my grandfather, Mickey Rooney. To live with us. So I'm flying with Nathan Lane across the country, getting to know him. Uh, Looks like they're going to cast him. He auditions again, so it's us two and Mickey. We're the cast. And Scatman Carruthers. And Meg Ryan played my girlfriend for a few episodes. Sounds like a great show. Did it get picked up? No, (laughs) it just, uh, it was on Saturday. It had 25 million people and got canceled. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah, it's those days. Pre-fractured, you know, there's nothing else to watch. Yeah. Um. That was the crazy experience. So I'm um, in living in New York. I, I didn't know anything. I still was terrified the whole time. Like, I, I rented an apartment on Lexington and 57th Street. Yeah. So they, um, and it was pretty nice. It was like $1,700. I was making 7500 a week on the show. So 30000 a month. I'm nobody insane. in Manhattan. So they said, well, uh, Robert Redford ed- edited Ordinary People in this apartment. What? <laughs> what the fuck? What does that have to you, you must be mistaken. <laughs> so then um, I'll go forward six years for a second. I'm doing a movie with Kirk Douglas and and, and Burt Lancaster right before I get SNL. The director is Jeff Canu, former editor. So then Jeff Canu um, said that he had edited Ordinary People. I said, well, where'd you edit it? He goes, well, Bob wanted to edit it on this little apartment on Lexington Avenue. So it was, it so was it's true. true. Yeah. One of those, What? So it's, it's in Rockefeller Center. We're shooting the sitcom. I'm on the sixth floor shooting this sitcom. The first day we're at a table, Mickey Rooney pulls out a 38 revolver. They're not going to get me. When I walk around New
3: York, I keep it on them. Oh, yeah, a 38.
1: <laughs> now, Scab Man is there, smokes pot all day long. So you just go in the restroom. It's just weed, 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 weed. Nicest guy in the world. His pot was Terrible. Because my brother came out. It's horrible. So then, in those days, we, there was a break in the show. It was the fall of 80 or 81. We went back to San Francisco. So I got a lid of pot to bring to Scatman. Can't believe it. I just put it in my suitcase. I don't, I'm not a drug dealer, but just, <laughs> it's like, and I didn't even smoke pot. So I gave it to, to Scatman. You know, it was really, such a sweet person. Next day in the elevator, he's still kind of paranoid, you know, from the 1930s. He said, Dana, the music. Was good. Uh, might I get a pound? <laughs> yeah, it was a quote. <laughs> a, pound? a pound? So, a pound of weed. Later on, after this show ended, my brother and I drove to LA with a gigantic bag of pot, like this, <laughs> and, and went to Scatman's house in Van Nuys. He played songs for us. We were like his there, friends. There with Scatman. Yeah. Mickey was, um, uh, c- kind of crazy, one of the craziest people I'd ever met. I was the number, and I did this on Saturday Night Live, and I just did my Mickey impression and then he just wrote it down. And later, years later, Bill Hader said it was the favorite thing he'd ever seen me do on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's awesome.
3: I was the number one star in the world. Hear me? Bang.
1: The world. Now, he said that 10,000 times in the four months we filmed. Literally. I was enormous. He was so bitter. He's like, he's, he, and he was non sequitur. He's like, Judy Garland never owned a car. You know why? Because they pumped her
3: so full of drugs, they killed her.
1: (laughs) And he would talk until he ran out of air, one of those guys. I called up the head of Warner Brothers in 1955. I said, this is Mickey Rooney. I need a job.
3: He hung up on me. You
1: know, everything was really dark and twisted. He would pull out like $5,000 in cash because he'd been broke for years, but he was doing Sugar Babies on Broadway. Think I can afford lunch? (laughs) (laughs) And there's so much. That's a book in itself. Right. So while, while you are in New York on this show, were you an SNL fan? Like, were you watching the show? I was possessed by it, and I would ask through a connection. A wardrobe guy was able to get up to 8H, where they do SNL, sit in the bleachers, often on Thursday, and watch Joe Piscopo and Eddie Murphy rehearse. So here I was. Wow. Mickey, the first day of read-through, just pointed at me and said, You're the straight man. So I was just a completely straight, wearing a sweater, asking questions. What are you guys doing? Where are you going? I finally would just add up all the questions. I was a straight man. And then I would go up and watch Saturday Night Live. So I was just two floors away from where I wanted to get to. Wow. But Wow. Yeah. And so weirdly, I did, as we all
2: know. Um, but what's that process like? Is it you... Hunting down, trying to get an
1: audition, or they saw you do something else. I was like, let's bring him in, see what. After one of the boys, I was enough, whatever. I got a manager in L.A. I auditioned for SNL a couple times. Uh, I One of my worst auditions was the Comedy Store, five minutes of pop, one after the other. I went on like 11 o'clock following Sam Kennison. In, oh, man. In his prime. Yeah. with no MC in between. Sam levitated the room, and now Dana Garney. They never got my (laughs) name right. No one ever said Dana Carvey (laughs) once. Uh, Epic bomb. Wasn't that special? (laughs) It was just fucking nightmare. So that put me in a deep depression for a couple months. Uh. But then eventually I go back to the other cafe. I'm playing club. More clubs are opening. I'm playing Seattle. I'm starting to do seven, eight shows a week. Three times, three three weeks a month. So I and I'm so I'm really starting to get better, a lot better, but still in L.A. It wasn't happening for me. Audition once. Uh, I think Al Franken saw me at the Punchline in San Francisco, mm. but I had a bad set. I had no confidence. Uh, in the meantime, because I had an agent and a manager, and I took everything. I was just insecure. I did a pilot with Desi Arnaz Jr. Uh, called "Whacked Out," just a goofy pilot. And we're doing, we're doing the pilot with the live audience, yeah. and we're fucking bombing. <laughs> and then I hear this gruff voice going, What's the matter with you people? This is funny. It's Lucille Ball at 80 years of age. Defending you. Defending her son. Admonishing the audience. Yeah. Well, Desi Arthur Jr., he was not in a good place. He got a B-12 shot every morning. They pack him in ice, give him a cookie, put him out there. <laughs> that kind of thing. Incredibly nice guy but she, she then they go my god it's Lucille Ball so the whole the whole taping stopped the whole audience got in a line and wanted to get her autograph it took like 2 hours <laughs> we're in the back like what the <laughs> what is this i did a pilot called um, city slickers with michael richards i played the innocent sheriff in a small town he did his michael richards thing hey kid you know whatever he does i did a lot of pilots that sucked and i in retrospect i shouldn't have done any of it i should have had confidence in myself I eventually did turn it all down. I did another crazy one, Blue Thunder with James Farentino, and I played the guy in the helicopter with him, mm. Clinton Wonderlove. And my lines Wait, again. Clinton
2: Wonderlove, Wonderlove, what was your name?
1: Wonderlove. Now, James who
2: went That to should the, be your Instagram handle by the way, Clinton Wonderlove. Yeah. <laughs> 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 if you don't want to be found.
1: So, uh these stories are so bizarre, even as I say, though. I have to admit, James, I
0: love this.
2: James this is
1: Farantino is in full Scarface mode, okay? I didn't know. So he's got, we go up in the fake helicopter and they're waving us around, throwing fog at us. Most of my lines were just like, he goes, jam him, Jeffo. And I go, I am jamming. I am jamming. You know, I was in the helmet and just, you know, it was horrible. He has a styrofoam <laughs> cup of what I thought was water, huge, a little bit of ice in it. He leaves. There's a guy down there. Looks like he deals cocaine. <laughs> so I just go. I'll take a sip. I'm thirsty. I don't want to get out of this suit. Get out of the helicopter. It's straight vodka. It's like 9 a.m. He would rip the pages out of the script and just slam them on the <laughs> instrument panel. And then he would kind of lean out because he's like, "I'm better than this, you fucks." You know, it's just <laughs> like insane. He would call me at night at home. What are they saying about me? <laughs> what are they saying? So that went on. Bubba Smith almost beat him up. Bubba Smith, the football player, football yeah. player, yeah, yeah. and Dick Buckus—they yeah. were our sidekick, goofy, goofy guys. Bubba Smith was 6'8", 280. <sighs> so Jan- James Tarantino's not having a good day. What the fuck? What do do that? And you know, calm down, James. And then he kind of—I don't remember the exact language—but he somewhat sort of threatened Bubba a little bit. That's, at, that was not a smart yeah. move. So Bubba just stood there, kind of put his uh, his hands out, and said, "Go ahead, take any piece you want." <laughs> and wow. I think James, even yeah. though he's coked up, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. I think I, you know, I think I uh, could see my shrink now because I'm, uh, you know. But uh, so that ended, but the way it ended was weird. So in the meantime, I'm killing in clubs. I'm doing this goofy show. I wanted out of it. I told James, hey, get me out. And then the wardrobe guy I was friends with, and I was kind of telling him, you know, I do stand-up and stuff. He goes, yeah, sure, okay,
3: <laughs> right, yeah.
1: No, I'm a comedian. It's okay. It's okay. So they got me all dressed up one day, tenth episode. Put me on the thing. Put me in the chopper, waving us around. Stopped it. Uh, Dana, can you come down the ladder? So they they take me down the ladder and they fire me with the thing on in front of everybody. Come on. What? Yeah. Yeah. You're 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 let go. So I have to walk in front. Walk a shame. Talk about the walk a shame. Helicopter. Well, I on. finally got the helmet yeah. off. I think. But I'm just walking back to the wardrobe guy, and then I'm a little emotional, even though I was pretty fucking happy. But it was thirty thousand a month again. You know, what I didn't know that in like '82, '83. This is like '83, '83. 80, That's '83. I mean, yeah. So then I say to the wardrobe guy, I mean, "You're making guy,
2: good money on terrible things, but like you're right, supporting but it, yourself."
1: But it didn't. It was torture. It was yeah. stupid, and yeah. I got smart in a second. But basically, that was the last straw. So I said to the My wardrobe friend, you know, I was kind of emotional because that was the way they did it. It was so fucked up. Yeah, Yeah, that's the worst. And he was really, put his arm around, it's okay, man. It's okay. So then I did run into him later after my five, six years of SNL. I'm the star of SNL, Wayne's World kicking. I'm at some thing, something I'm doing, and he's there. And he's like, Dana, you were right. You were right, man. He was so stunned. You, you are yeah. funny. You are the funny.
2: The
3: guy with
1: the helmet that yeah. got fired. <laughs> so he went crazy. Did he
0: ever tell you why they, had to do, why they chose to do it that way instead of just, hey, come no. in early. You don't need to dress don't, up today. Don't know why. Who were
1: you replaced by? They put in a very attractive blonde woman. Oh. Okay. But I was terrible, and it was terrible. But then I, I'm still doing the clubs. The agents are still pushing me to do stuff. I, I got real close to Amadeus, yeah, you know, I, I I had a screen test with mm-hmm. that. Thank God, Steven Spielberg.
0: Get... Amadeus, yes.
1: Um, Milos Forman. Oh did. yeah, it was about Mozart, who had a boyish.
0: Oh, that's right. I'm sorry, I was yeah. thinking of Amistad. My bad. Amadeus, no, no, yeah. yes,
1: yes. And then they they offer me. Fenster Hall, a spin-off of Punky Brewster, thirty thousand for the pilot. I'm gonna do do that. With Soleil Moon as Punky Brewster and you're like the
2: dean of <laughs> students or something. No, like I don't is, I think it was oh. pre
1: that. It was like 84. Oh, got it. So then I finally had said enough of, you know, Lucille Ball yelling of one of the boys enough. I'm not doing it. And then I really just said I'm just going to do stand up for 2 years. So then I really focused on stand up. So I'm just stand up and so Robin would come in, levitate the room, and I would just think I got to get better. You know, I got to get better. Wow. And I was very competitive. I always was as a kid. So I wanted to headline um, everywhere I went. I wanted to kill so hard that they would not remember the first two acts, even if they were my friends. <laughs> you know, I just was. I mean, so,
2: listen, you could support your friends, but also want that
1: for Oh, yourself. no, I always yeah. played fair. I yeah. never sabotaged. I supported them. I mean, I had. there were gunslingers, too. Al LaBelle was a really great, is a great stand-up. And he had this song he would do at the end with a tape. I'm out bell, and he really could sing. So I'm playing a comedy club with him where the dressing room, the wall is common with the club. So I'm sitting on the couch. He's killing so hard. I'm just here. Hearing... The whole room is vibrating, you know, from his yeah, act. Yeah. And now, and then the door opens, he comes in. He's like, yeah, it's great eyes, man. And the crowd, more, more, more. And, then, and now, Dan O'Flarfo, you know, never <laughs> So, it was war. It was But
0: you sound war. like you are no longer the, the shy or the introvert or the part of you that's like, you've gotten past that
1: by oh, now. Uh, I'm much, much, much better. And then, so then I was getting really good. And I was getting fans. And I was a uh, headliner in all the clubs. I never was a road monster. I played the Rib Tickler in Minnesota. I played uh, Spellbinders in Houston with this famous comedian opened for me who died. He's such a Kennison-type, brilliant guy. Anyway, um, so I was doing that, and then it comes around that um, some people who had worked with SNL saw me at the Comedy Magic Club, Mimosa Beach. So then they say, okay, Lorne Michaels is going to come see you. Okay, so Lorne had never seen me. So I'm like, they said. In in L.A.? L.A. Okay. Because I kept a little place down there. Even though we we were going back and forth. We had a place in San Francisco. It was like, am I going to make it? Maybe we'll just live up there. So I had a little place, and I said, I'm not going to audition at the Improv or the Comedy Store. I'd been there, done that. There's a little club on the west side doesn't exist anymore in Santa Monica. It was called Igby's. It's 100 seats, low ceiling, great crowd, not an industry crowd. I played there a lot and killed in the room. So you were setting yourself up for for success. success. Well, the only roadblock, which was not, was Rosie O'Donnell was headlining that week. So I had to convince the owner to talk to Rosie about what was going to happen and accommodate me. And Rosie said yes. It's amazing. So, so I, so first of all, I'm leaving to go there. This is the culmination of everything I've been telling you, and I knew it. So I'm really nervous, and uh, my wife and I, we go to a gas station. just like early evening. They go, oh, we have no gas here. There is no gasoline here. You know, what? You know. At a gas station. <laughs> yeah. So I'm getting so nervous, and I go there, and I'm just just trying to control. Now I'm confident, but I'm terrified. I'm fighting all of it, you know. And I meet Rosie O'Donnell and she seemed supernaturally confident, like crazy. Like I go, where have I how have I not met you before? All right. So it was like, I'll go on first. But it was the middle act what did less or whatever. I was gonna get 40 minutes, 35 to 40 instead of five. And I was at this point, I was doing 75 minute sets, and I was pretty loaded, you know. So then I go over, and um, off the side of the stage, and there's people around, and I'm looking for. I go up, and I see, uh, I see the head of the network come in, Brandon Tartikoff at the time. Of NBC. NBC. Mm-hmm. Head of NBC comes in. Then I see Lauren Michaels come in. I see where they're, be- they're, they're getting seated. You know, come on. Then Cher comes in. Oh, come on. Yes. So your heart rate is at what right now? Oh, uh, I don't know. It's is, all is, is just she, deep she. just happened
2: to be there to see she comedy. She was hanging out with uh. them,
1: maybe talking about something. I ran into her over the years, and she's like, "I tell people I was there the night you made it." You know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that, so then I, I do my set. I would say it's a, it's a C plus, but I was in such good shape that if you asked Lauren, he was already thinking about how I'd be on the show, even though I didn't have the look. I still had kind of the. Page boy, blondish hair, and I, I always felt SNL guys like Bill Murray would make you laugh or beat you up. Right. I mean, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy—they were just giant pirates, Belushi. They were like they'd fucking fight you, they'd drink, the drugs, and fight, you know. And then it was just me. I give me a Bud Light, and I looked like I was twelve. Nope. We, you know. So then um, I met Lauren outside. I wasn't sure. What was I, your act then, though? Uh, I had a church lady. Okay. I had a Chop Broccoli. There was a little piano there. Those two made it on the first show. I did Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. You know, I did other voices, other characters. Did you do Paul McCartney knowing that
2: he was probably f- friends with Paul McCartney? I didn't
1: know <laughs> he, who was friends or anything uh, like that. I'm not sure I had a Paul bit. <laughs> you know, that comes up in a second. Got it.
2: Uh, I'm so
0: ahead of the game.
1: Now, when you are, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's a good question. Yeah. My research skills. I, I I'd have to think about what I really did in Totem, but I know right, those right. were on there. Yeah. The
0: the the major characters and impersonations that you do. Obviously, there's people like a president. But mm-hmm. what about church lady? What what about? Did you draw on something from real life, or do you just riff
1: one day I, and you come up with something? That came up over time at that small club, the other cafe. It started out that when I would come on the stage, the audience, I look so young. That the audience, I sort of pretend what they're thinking. And I started doing that attitude, this rhythmic, condescending attitude. I don't know where it came from. It's like, well, apparently they let minors come into this place. (laughs) It wasn't the church lady. It was just people thinking that. Then I would do it as any condescending teacher you ever had in school— Let's fold our paper in half, make a little sailboat. Well, it looks like mine's a little bit better than yours. So then I enfolded it into being a Lutheran, into the church lady people, the woman behind the punch bowl, the orthopedic shoes, completely asexual, the real power of the church. And then that became that, and it started to get into, I remember just, I didn't write things down. I was just on stage. They said, well, isn't that special? Just came out one night. As the ultimate dismissal of a human being. Yeah. yeah, we're trying to do a podcast. We're doing this. Yeah. Oh, well, is that? Well, isn't that special? <laughs> we had have, we have that somewhere, don't we?
0: It's going in the trailer
1: now. Don't we have one of those? We
2: have it in
0: real life. I don't know we why do have we in need to hear. I mean, here it comes for well,
2: you.
3: Well, isn't that special? <laughs> <laughs> good. So,
1: so, then, uh, good. so good. then I thought I, w- I, I was told I was in the running. I met Phil Hartman and John Lovitz at our mutual manager's office, you know. Hello. <laughs> Hi. We liked you immediately. Phil was so shy, he said maybe he'll be a writer. But he was already the star of, he was doing sketch at the Groundlings. He was, you know, famous at the Groundlings. So then we had to do one more audition at, like, a studio. Okay, I'll do it. And you just go out cold. And Lauren is there with, like, cast members, Lovitz, Nora Dunn, a few other people. It's just dry driving It's like the
2: coldest room. Cold. Yeah.
1: And then I'm doing my stuff. I can't remember what I was doing. And then there was a fire alarm in the middle of my audition. You know, and then finally they solved it. So that was 10 minutes of death. I'm just standing there. And then Lauren goes, is there anything else that we need to see? Or is that about it? You know. Isn't I, that special? I realized later he was testing me. Because the pressure of SNL is so intense, if somebody gets emotional, or I'm, so, I'm sorry, you can't. You have can't, to can't. never let fixed, the flag can't. touch the ground. Jim Carrey comes on after me, puts his foot behind his thing, does every voice you could think of, <laughs> hops on one foot, turns his shirt inside. I mean, it's just like, well, he's got it, you know. Um, but the way Lauren Cassidy at that time and Jim did fine <laughs> in the Living Color. He looked at it like a sitcom almost, in parts and pieces.
0: We can't have everyone doing that one note. Yeah. You have something different than he brings.
1: Yeah, but he was amazing. I didn't think I was going to get it. And then I I realized I got it. And this is July of 86. And I would just, I'd played little bomber clubs. I played a pizza parlor in Martinez. It was just one of those one-nighters. In that A couple weeks earlier, only four people showed up. Half the audience hated me. Good night. Um, (laughs) Now, when you get on SNL in July, so when they do the premiere, what,
2: September probably? It's October
1: 11th. Okay. And I'm scared. Now I'm really scared. I'm going to fuck up on Saturday Night Live. They said the show was canceled, but they brought it back for only an eight-show pickup, the only time in the show's history. They said, if you don't hit the ground running, we're out. So I think I'm going to pull the plug on fucking SNL. Lauren said, we'll come to Long Island and stay for a while. (laughs) I didn't even know what it meant. I guess I have to go. So I went, but my wife stayed in LA because she had a really good job writing speeches and for this, which I was mentioning on Instagram yeah. a little bit yesterday. And so I met Lauren Michaels' house for like two or three weeks. And I mean, I mean, you can take Jack's room. Jack who? Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and then it was that was where I met Paul. It was just Paul's coming over here tonight. Paul. Paul? Paul Paul. Oh, that'd be Paul McCartney, Linda. <laughs> so I'd never been on TV, scared of my mind, played a pizza parlor few weeks before, <laughs> did the freaky thing with Rosie, got in the show. Now I'm up there. Chevy Chase is dropping by, saying he loved my audition tape. I go, really? <laughs> Whitney Brown is there. He was on s for a while, and Lauren. And then Linda and Paul came over four nights in a row from 10 o'clock to like 3 a.m. Smoked- just, just to hang out. Hanging out, playing music. Um, and i that's where i got to know paul in a very interesting way i was really scared to say something stupid to him but i was nobody and so i just mentioned a song called tug of war to him and which my friends and i really love we're beatle fanatics and we had every everyone of his albums so it says gems on everyone and brought up that lyric, the chorus, one day we'll stand up on top of the world with our flag unfurled, but it won't be soon enough for me. I asked him, What, would, what were you thinking when you wrote that lyric? So then we're just friends after that. Oh, you know, I am sick of a big flag, uh, you know, up on the mountain, you know, didn't <laughs> know. So he really trusts me after that.
0: But I feel like that smart move by Lauren in that is you all are now hanging out, forming that like chemistry, mm-hmm. getting to know each other. I'm yeah. assuming that helps when you're under the lights and the cameras are on
1: with some pressure. Oh, God, yes. And then, you know, you have to go to New York, have to get the apartment, have to go uh, into 8H, seeing it. This is like, because you're in there for like three weeks before the show starts. Wow. What I'm going to do? What am I going to do? And a friend of mine gave me a really good piece of advice, and uh, I pass it on to Chris, Chris Red, who's there, because mm-hmm. um, I got to know him just a little bit texting and playing a few clubs in L.A. So he gets SNL. And I said, I'm passing this word on to you from a friend of mine from 30 years ago. Because your emotion is to hide, like, curl up. And I said, this is the time to be audacious. Just be audacious. Just balls out. Just fucking manhandle it. Go the opposite of your emotion. And he's done really well on that show. So that's kind of cool. So
2: when you get on SNL, you're a featured performer?
1: I'm actually, I'd never done sketch comedy per se, except The Tumbling Nights. And I'm a full time cast member, which, which nev- includes
2: writing. No, but
1: uncredited. Ah. but you don't get a credit, but you write. So Lauren's ex wife and I, she's assigned to help me develop the Church Lady. So she's actually the one who came up with the. We came up with a talk show. She came up with how about Church Chat? Perfect. And the theme song. This woman named Cheryl was this music producer. We need a theme for Church Lady. She played the chords to Black Magic Woman backwards. So that was that thing. So I'm a full cast member, and I'm in the first sketch of the night with <laughs> Phil Hartman and Jan Hook. So all of us, it's our first time. Now they have 20 cast members, have to be there for years. I didn't even know it was what the cold opening was. We were just the first sketch. And we I, I play a game show psychic. I didn't write this one, but I'm a guy who answers questions before they're asked. Phil was great. Jan hooks all-time great and finally a fake meteor hits me because and the question is and i go meteor and i was using garth as that character because it was my brother brad i go meteor meteor if you see it i'm doing (laughs) garth (laughs) i used it later with mike so that was my first night and church chat was the practice show it was the last sketch it barely got on the show here's another weird one almost like share so my first week of snl the show's saturday Lauren says, "Uh, um, Neil Young is doing a show at Madison Square Garden. It's like a garage band motif. Needs kind of a lady, an old lady that would come in and yell at him. So on Wednesday, we do the read-through, and I did church lady in the read-through. Did okay, but it's so weird. You're naughty, bulbous, and what the fuck, you know. Later on, I found out that it was on the bubble. It wasn't going to be on the show, but Phil Hartman kind of said, I think let's give church lady a try. In, I give Lauren credit to put it on. Meanwhile, while they're doing this, I'm going down to Madison Square Garden and meeting Neil, and then going out. They mic'd me up. I don't know if I had the same dress or some dress, and I go out. Now you be quiet here. This is much too loud. Isn't that weird. And so that, and then that premiered on SNL the same week. The same week. That was Wednesday <coughs> night. So I get back and I find out that I'm in the cold opening. I didn't know it was cold. I'm in that sketch. I'm in a sketch because Sigourney Weaver was the host. I'm in sort of an alien sketch playing the guy who's like, we're
3: going to die, man, (laughs) which is a good part, (laughs) right?
1: Um, I do Chop and Broccoli with Phil and Sigourney Weaver on the show. So I do the dress show, practice show. The church lady is the good night, the last show before the good nights on the practice show, where the, the graveyard, right? Yeah, yeah. I get out there, I'm in the dress, I had a, all those hours on stage, 10,000 hours in clubs knowing where the, the hot spot is. I said, well, isn't that special to Victoria Jackson playing my sidekick? Boom, laugh. Big laugh. It took all of my, my stand-up person, really wanted to face the audience. Because I'd never really done sketch. So I go, oh, no, i got to talk to her. I go, stage, folks. Don't break the fourth wall. So it basically kills, moves up to the first sketch position. The cold opening did well. Sean Broccoli did fine. So suddenly I am the show. The show's in the dumper. It's the first show of the season. I have four showcasing things. I can't remember the third one. And they're guaranteed eight. They're eight. guaranteed Eight. eight. But, but I was just four, three months, ten weeks before I was playing the pizza parlor. Yeah. Then I auditioned for SNL. Then I met Paul McCartney. Then I developed this thing. Yeah. Then I went to Madison Square Garden. Now the live show is coming at 1130. And I'm so nervous. I'm in my dressing room. I'm kind of swearing at myself with the mirror. Fuck, fuck, fuck you. And my manager comes in at the time, Brad Gray, who passed That's, away. Yeah. But Brad,
3: oh, he's very low-key. Talk like this. So he sat down and he goes uh, I don't know why I don't know why it happened but uh, it's your show you know it's your show tonight you know I don't know how this is going he, he was he was
1: Joe Biden's cousin <laughs> 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 I don't
3: know <laughs> number
1: one you got... so, so I go out and um, my instincts kicked in the crowd was hot and church lady just whoosh. and it's the kind of thing that Lauryn Michaels loves because Phil would come in. Then all these religious scandals started to happen. Mm. Phil and Jam would come in and score, or Lovitz or Sean Penn. I'm doing a thing where I'm making fun of his wife. She's standing right off camera, glaring at me. Well, Madonna, she's got the. It doesn't quite live up to the Lord. Then he <laughs> he, he sucker punches me. We fight. I do. Uh, John Goodman. I, so Church lady is just explodes, and then I had all this other stuff too. Chopping broccoli killed. I only did it once on SNL, but it people never forgot it. Right. So then, um, then I'm back in the dress, small dressing room, and then I'm just, I just break down.
2: <laughs> I just sobbing. St- um, is because this? You're like, this is it. It doesn't get better well, than this, this.
1: I'm thinking of me as a kid dreaming yeah. this. I'm thinking of just. The, all the path I went, the, the stupid uh, sitcoms and, and, and all the the bombs and the things that were canceled and being shit on. and then,
0: What is that now, 17, 18 years you've been working since the first?
1: Well, no, my first set was 76, and then so it's it, a this full 10, 10 years. years. Yeah, the that's classic like 10, 10 years. years. So now I'm on Saturday Night Live. I, I really scored hard in the first show. Um, everything came crashing down on me. Like this was my ultimate dream like came true live in real time. And Sigourney Weaver afterward, you're going to have a career. Paul Simon's coming over. You know, I'm slightly emotional talking about it now because it was um, just so surreal. But you can see the Mickey Rooney part of it and uh, um, just Cher being there and James Ferentino and just all this weird stuff slivered in there right before I got SNL was one last thing I did that wasn't stand-up because it was a feature film with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and that's called Tough Guys. Tough so guys. I brought that yeah. up to
2: you a couple weeks yes. ago, and I was like, I saw like an AFI tribute thing yeah. that you did for Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. and I, like, I didn't realize that you did like dramatic movies. Well, well I, I, didn't, mind.
1: Oh, wait, I, right. I didn't. I didn't. I just luckily, f- weirdly got that part, you know, because, and I was in awe of them. That was another surreal Yeah. So uh, one question from that. So that's how I made it, guys. is that how you closed so e- Yeah, no, that's yeah. so
0: easy. I, we're going to try to do the same exact thing. Um, <laughs> one la- uh, a question on that, though. You're standing there. You clearly have made it. It's hitting, all, it's hitting you at once. So you've achieved that dream you want. How does yeah. that sit with you? Like, do you need a new one? Is, are you going to expand and make, make that dream bigger now?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we had a show next week, oh, well. yeah, and nice. it was just one time. The next week, I wasn't in the show very much. And I remember Lauren seeing me like kind of tricked out. He's like, it happens. You go up, you go down. But um, then the dream just expanded. I was getting more confident. Yeah. The show was gelling. I mean, when we first started there, we'd come out of the elevators on the Friday night 11 a.m. There'd be like two autographed people there. But by 91 or 92, we had Sandler and Mike came in, and, and um, we had, of course, Phil emerged, Jan, and, you know, um, Chris Rock came. We just, then we'd come out, and it'd be like the Beatles. We were like, the whole show had lifted. And for a while, when Church Chat was on, the rating pop was, they'd never seen something like that, you know, because it was just this thing. It was a yeah. thing for a while. Oh, you got to see it, what Church lady's going to do. And so and I was just riding that wave. And then, you know, I one time I went to do stand-up in New London, Connecticut. I drove myself to theater. Only time I had it. Tonight, the church lady. You know? Oh. So I was a little bit – I didn't want to be a one-trick pony. Right. You know, other things came in, Hans and Franz and Wayne's World, and then the political impressions came in as well. And that all worked to a second culmination when I was doing Ross Perot, the president, won the Emmy – It's only a couple people have because it's a weird category. Mm -hmm. Got on the cover of Rolling Stone. Wayne's World was a global hit. And so that was – the. but that first night is what was so memorable because it just unleashed so much emotion and frustration because in retrospect, I I was pretty close. I was going to maybe not make it. I was – Maybe just not going to get the brass ring, especially SNL. I thought if I hadn't made it then, maybe I wouldn't have been in a position. I was lucky that Rosie was there. I was lucky that club was available. There was like a lot of things that fell my way. And then in the show, a lot of things fell my way. Mike Myers asked me to be part of Wayne's World. Oh, I was assigned George Bush Sr. before he was president. He wins the presidency.
2: So now it's four years of material.
1: And Lovett's called me to concede before the actual Dukakis called the actual president. (laughs) You won. Congratulations. You'll be in the cold opening for four years. So we both knew what that meant. So it was such overwhelming good fortune and good luck and just having just a lot of fun doing it now but also
0: a lot of hard work and yeah. failure and you yes. you getting better like
1: i mean it's both
0: you got to get lucky but you got to work hard
1: work your ass off yeah. uh, just do those clubs put in those hours uh, and go through all that pain it's just gritty snl's gritty i mean <laughs> it's smelly and there's tape and you're you've got a co- they're ripping things off you comedy club the friday night late show when they're packed and drunk and you're following this great middle act you're just like grit and suffering it really is a lot of failure mostly failure
2: impressions like the george senior the president um did you have an impression or did you just have to
1: create that at snl i was terrible no i'd never done it before and i'd never even thought to do it i was like hi i'm george bush i had nothing i had nothing but then when he won the presidency it took me a long time and i was trying to find a hook i was just watching him that's how i do it i don't have any method except watching him and one night i was with al franken and we're sitting around. It's a bad impression. And I just came up with that, that guy over there doing that thing, that thing he does out in that whole area. It probably wasn't that well formed. But Al really started laughing, and that was the hook-in. Using, using your hand? Yeah, thinking that guy oh. in that area out there doing that thing he does over there, that thing he does. And then, like, what I like to do is wind down on things. So they become a character. And so over the four years, it became – you know, he may be you know, not going to do it, became not, that. and uh, the audience took the journey with me, Right. and because it was in one, uh, there were no cutaways, it was the only time I could really take liberties with improvising a little bit, right. and especially visually. Because when the, when, when the audience knows you're, being, you're discovering it, they sense it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And when it's not a joke, they can laugh really fucking hard. It's kind of like when Church Lady was doing something physical or fighting with Saddam Hussein, with John Goodman. <laughs> then the audience just laughs to a point of just... When I did one Church Lady with um, Walter Payton and Joe Montana playing football, let's get our pigskin under here and go out <laughs> and thrust. And it killed so hard... That the sound man, the old sound mic, got sound. <laughs> Stop me afterwards. He goes, kid, I've been here a long time. I've been here through the height of SNL and everything. I never seen the meter's peak like that. Wow. So that was,
0: but you know, that was nice. That is, isn't that the? I mean, a kernel of that method you did all the way back twenty years ago with yes. the Beatles. With, with your brothers, though. You you yeah. were practicing it then. You just yes. got really good at it.
1: Yes, I had a knack. That I developed, but it, when I got to SNL, my wife even said that. How many impressions did I really do? But then they would assign me, right? And then you would discipline yourself. Mm. That's why I, I try to make it a task. Like, okay, I'm going to do Fauci and I'm going to do Biden. I'm still evolving Biden. I just have the beginnings of the hook. But uh, that
2: you know, was my, that was my favorite when I wished you a Merry Christmas and you sent me back a Doctor Fauci.
3: Wishing me a Merry Christmas. I know. I've just
1: made him a character like I did George (laughs) Bush Sr. I'm Dr. Tony
3: Fauci, you know. I don't mind pandemics, you know. (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, people pay attention to what I'm saying. I mean, you know, eight months ago, I had a bow tie on, you know, a cup of coffee. I'm in a room. They knock every two hours. I go, whatever, you know. Now, all of a sudden, I'm on CNN every night. I'm getting ladies uh, writing me letters. You know, my wife and I are getting frisky. I mean, she
1: was, uh, you know, making love every other month to a 79-year-old doctor <laughs> named Anthony Fauci. Now she's <laughs> fucking a star. And from the bottom of my Fauci, go fuck yourself. <laughs> so that that is just a fun song that I love doing, Hi. and I'm just enjoying it, enjoying it so much. <laughs> Um, so
2: segue into a little something different because you've been super supportive of me. We've had a million conversations about like, yeah, stick with it, kid. Like you just never know because
1: I was a waiter. Yeah. And I remember what waitering taught me is, is that, uh, always assume that the waiter is smarter than you. I mean, people would treat me so bad at the Holiday Inn. It was like, they would play jokes on me. Hey, we need something. Then I'd come over. No, we don't. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff.
2: So, but you would always tell me, like, listen, I, you've been on both sides of the camera. Because you had your own show after SNL. Oh,
1: yeah. That then w- I had this that, whole that wasn't story. That wasn't
2: successful. And then you basically.
1: Artistically, it was. But it didn't belong right. after Spin City. Yeah. <laughs>
2: or was it a, what was the Tim Allen show? Home improvement. Home improvement. Home improvement. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's a whole other story. But wasn't
2: yeah. Steve Carell <laughs> we'll and, Steve and Stephen Colbert weren't they like that was like their first gigs? Was on oh, that yeah. show?
1: Yeah, and they were nervous and scared. And at SNL had passed them up. They're yeah. in their early 30s. They don't know what's going to happen for them. They were so thrilled to get it, and they were just, uh, you know, they were so good that the first day of rehearsal, I hadn't done sketch in a while. Ago, I go, I got to really get back in shape. <laughs> you know? Right. And right. they were hungry. Yeah. And brilliant. So.
2: What was that audition process like? Because I remember you told me—I don't know which guy it was—but you said someone came in and it was like
1: they didn't really have a good audition, but well, you knew you knew. I had, they... I was a horrible auditioner, and I would bomb for everything practically. I mean, I one time I bomb, I probably lo- I auditioned for a hundred things when they're sending me out in eighty-one, eighty-two, and I was too stupid, and I would just not get them, and so much rejection. One time they said, not only they don't like you, they uh, you frighten them. Why don't they... <laughs> that's good feedback. But, you... but yeah, was Steven, uh, Steven was pretty confident. They came in a room, me, Louis CK and Robert Smigel. Steve Carell came in a little nervous. He wasn't really on point, really funny. I saw his tape. We brought him back. Then we were in LA and he, uh, then he just popped. You yeah. Know. But, but I knew I said, well, that's not him. He's just, he's just, you know, intimidated, nervous in a little room. And, um, that's another very strange part of uh, what's happened to me on the planet. Another that Carell and Colbert on that show became what they became right. from that show, and it's sort of funny. I'll run into them once in a while. I'm running into Nancy and Steve, and I go, "You would have made it anyway. Don't you know? Don't think that." And then Nancy goes, "No, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he really needed that." <laughs> Because they all used that to kind of grandfather into the Daily Show, I mm-hmm. see, and then they went from there. Right, but then they'd been on television. They had a te- They did a sketch called "Nauseating Wait- Nauseated Waiters" it was so funny, and they used that. Um, so I just did a Zoom with Colbert Stephen. Yeah, and we're he, we just have a relationship. Like if I don't talk to him for ten years, I talk to him just because he used to stay at my house in Malibu. We wrote a script together, and I do think that. Uh, to treating people the same all the time. Uh, you know, I don't really do it in, or even say I'm doing it in a self-congratulatory way. It just seems like because people would shit on me, it just seems like a natural thing. Right. I told right. them I'm just where you were at just the three minutes ago. Right. I don't know how brilliant you are. And it, when the show got canceled, I said to them the way I remember it, you know, I said, you guys have all the ingredients. You need to make it from here. You're not only really funny and really versatile; you're also very likable. I don't know if you're going to make it, <laughs> right? But I can tell you this: you have everything you need. And then they, there they went. You know, so, yeah, well, I mean, It Sounds
0: like you had. I mean, you had spent that ten years developing everything you need. You just needed the shot. You know, you have. The I was so insecure. And opportunity you opportunity have to meet.
1: Yeah, I was so insecure, and confidence is a, a mercurial kind of <laughs> it's hard to I, grasp yeah and i always say that <clears throat> or the way i try to express it is that say you're you're confident you're going to call it you're at 40 percent you know you're not feeling that good and then you get you work your way up maybe as a stand-up or whatever you work your way up and you feel like wow I'm, I'm like a i'm like a 96 right now you know but then if you can go to 100 that last four percent is bigger than the previous 96, 96 yeah. There's something about this having no fear, getting out of your own way. It's kind of like, you know, wait till they get a load of me. Right. I'm not worried about the audience <laughs> at all. And, you know, when I do stand up now, I, they, I just kid them about it. I go, you know, I just say, I mean, pre-pandemic, I, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a millionaire. I mean, I'm really rich. and. If I levitate the room or bomb, this has no effect on me at all. Because my <laughs> wife said, I'm playing these shithole clubs with my son. My wife says, you got to tell the audience why you're there. Because they they don't know. I'm, I was doing corporate dates for a long time. Now I'm sort of back. But they don't know. And they think maybe I need the $13. So she goes, you got to tell them. But I like the idea of it. Uh, but confidence is the thing. And, you know, there's, you collect victories as a stand up. And I think when you get a few hundred of them, mm-hmm. suddenly the pressure's mm-hmm. on the audience. You wow. know, rather than needy, like me, am I funny? Can I do this? And I call it the second voice, giving yourself a report card. Huh. And that second voice, you could have it when you're having sex or anything you're doing where you're judging yourself or questioning or thinking. And all you want to do in the art or podcasting is. Shut up that voice and just be present in the moment. And normally, that comes from just doing it. There's no huh. other way. Do it, do it, do it. Well, I mean, I appreciate especially you and
2: Spade when I talk to you. I mean, you guys have the same demeanor with me. You tell me the same things. I mean, I've had probably ten years of pilot seasons that I did not get, and then mm-hmm. you're just like it has nothing to do probably with your ability. Like they could no. probably just you, the dark haired guy, and they want the blonde haired kid. Like I, uh, you, you know, so I appreciate all the feedback you always give me and all the confidence because. That well, helps my extra 4%. Yeah, I, I mean. The conversations I have with Angelo, it's like, Car- Oh, yeah.
1: Carvey said I might make it one day. Like <laughs> well, that, be- goes, that goes more for me than... I've auditioned people, too. And so when they come in, you're really... You're just viscerally uh, experiencing just the, their type. If it's, a, if it's a movie. Right. Oh, uh, your vibe. How do you talk? Whatever. And most of the time, when people would come in, some would be nervous, some would be not. They'd be really... As far as just performance, and narrow, narrow, like, they're all really good. And I, after a while, would go stop them outside because <laughs> I, I could see they felt bad. i go, you're just as good as anyone who's just come in. We're going to make all these other decisions based on other things just so you know that. And they're like, really? It's like when I did this long story, goofy kids movie called Master of Disguise. So Harold... Gould, pistachio disguising, a crazy movie that never should have been. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> what you know, we would love we to have, have you back. We would gladly have yes. you on. For. That's that's as big or a fantastical story as anything I've told you. Uh, but what was kind of nice is Harold Gould was just at that point, you know, a famous older actor, and he got it right away. What I wanted him to do, and so I just called him that night after his first day at home, and he goes, Nobody calls. Nobody ever calls. No, I just guys "Why wouldn't I call you and say you're doing spot on what I want you to do? We're doing this vaudevillian rhythm. Hey, well, you know, you you slap, you keep, you always hit a man with an open open hand, let him keep his dignity, <laughs> slap at a dummy, you know, all that stuff." And I was like, "Well, that was this frequency here it was a musical, I and mean, he was great." So if someone comes out to me because I do this throwaway silly character, Red Red Necky, the Redneck comedian, it's like the worst comedian in the world. He's a Southern comic, you know. I'm Red Rednecky, the Redneck comedian. I knew a, I knew a guy, I knew a Redneck who made his sister, but only because Mama turned him down. Come and get some. And that's his catchphrase. So I want people to repeat that or my, my Obama, Michelle, because Obama's always invading my podcast. Dana, am I on this week? No, I'm having my sister act. What? Instead of the former leader of the free world, you're going to have a housewife from Connecticut. Michelle, I'm not on.
3: Nope, not on
1: this week. Leave the egg salad out. Just leave it out. Just don't do anything. I'll make a sandwich. Dana, I love her very much, but we're just in each other's face. So, Michelle, <laughs> I'm not on this week. And then one time I had Bobma come on and goes, I'm coming on. And I go, um, well, we don't really, we already have a guest. No, no. Dana, I'm coming on. And I got to pitch you some ideas. We got a huge deal, huge deal over there. at Netflix, never produced anything. I, you know, I got an idea for a movie about a big ship that sinks. And, um, <laughs> I'm calling it gigantic. <laughs> I think that's Titanic. Oh, fuck me, Michelle. What do you got? Nope. They didn't like gigantic. Nope. Didn't go. So that that's become uh, my new toy. I don't know why Obama now has become just. And again, it's for me, it's just funny. It's, it's apolitical. Having his voice invade the podcast. Just some about that. You know, talking like that. So, uh. That's all I still aspire to because that's what got me as a kid with my siblings. Just you like pe-
0: to make people laugh. You like to Monty
1: Python, him. repeating stuff, right. people making us. Uh, Andy Kaufman was just, you know, God, insanely God. funny. Um, a weird thing happened. Like, I wasn't really friends with Andy Kaufman, but I just thought he was so interesting and so bizarre. And then his partner wrote a book and wanted to interview me, you know. And um, – this was the guy who played Tony Clifton for you comedy fans. Oh, no. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Bob Jim Somebody yeah, the is his sidekick who, who also put the Tony Clifton makeup on. You know, so you didn't know if it was Andy or him. So he called me, and it was really interesting or flattering and weird. I, uh, he just would tell me about Andy, and I talked and talked, and I said, Well, I said all roads lead to Andy. And then I got the book, and that's there's a whole page, right? The first page of the book just says, All roads lead to Andy. <laughs> it's yeah. weird, okay? I didn't even know him that well. But I like the foreign man. I like the rhythm. Thank you yeah. very much. Yeah, I yeah, like that. I like Steve Martin. I like a blue spot. You know, I like that his didn't have jokes, it was just these rhythmic things. And um, Richard Pryor. Uh, you know, he was a good actor on Ed Sullivan. He would act, he'd do a lot of act-outs and stuff and rhythms and characters. I had a sweet moment with him. I did a movie called Moving. First year of SNL, I'm just doing a guest spot on his movie. Did the movie, and the director came up to me and said, Richard's just phoning it in today. He's not he's not doing it. And I was playing a schizophrenic who drives his car across country So I said, okay. He goes, can you get Richard going? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Get Richard going. I'll try. So I was doing all my shtick and doing all this stuff. And then he started to come alive. And he was really, really doing it. Such a sweet, shy, sensitive guy. Very, reminds me of Robin, you know. And I went into the wrong trailer at one point, And he was sitting in the dark. It was after he set himself on fire. And he had all his makeup and he had all the, you know, tissue paper. And he was just sitting by himself quiet.
3: And he's like, how you doing, young man? You know, just that kind of low energy. Are you having
1: fun? Yeah, I'm fun. That's what the old timers always told me. I ran into Rodney Dangerfield once. Hey, you having fun? You know, because at the end of the day, life's short. So you having yeah. fun? Yeah. And Rod it's Rodney also didn't make it until he was like fifty or something. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, do you find a lot of them because they have to be so on on stage are very quiet and kind of saving energy? Think, yes. When no one's on yes. them,
1: I would say that's predominantly true with Steve Martin and obviously uh, Richard Robin. Mm. You know um i mike myers said something interesting we were just casually talking the other day he said he he's ran into bruce springsteen at a party and he said he was talking so softly that he had to say bruce i i can't hear a word you're saying
3: (laughs) we (laughs) got to find a place in the middle (laughs) america's a great land and we know we can find this place it's over a hill but down a creek bed in the back of a barn. I'll get directions
1: for you in the middle. Excuse me? Because look at him on stage. Yeah. Right. So he's gotta be He's just, gotta be at a thousand. So he wants I'm to. I'm
3: gonna go pack myself an ice in the barn for a half hour, get a B twelve shot, and meditate. <laughs> Later on I'll scream for seven hours to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
2: It's true. Here's something we didn't talk about. So when you were at the height of SNL's fame, were there any film offers that came your way that you turned down that became like Ace no, Vin- did I- Ace Ventura come to you first, and you're like, no, nah, I'm good? Yes. It did? Yes.
1: Seriously? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just threw that out there. I, mean, was, I didn't know yeah. that either. Yeah, but, but Jim just did something you're not supposed to do, and it worked so beautifully. He just he just threw out every rule. I watched it with Nicolas Cage, who was really good friends. with. Uh, I was doing a movie with him, another shitbox movie I got trapped into, Trapped in Paradise. With Nicholas Cage, it was great and hilarious. And so we watched Ace Ventura, a little theater in, in the middle of Canada. And so we got it right. All oh, righty then, all that stuff where he's not even mm. in the scene. He's just, just doing it. Just abstract. But uh, I turned down that. I did Opportunity Knox, which was a mistake, but that was Ron Howard's company. And Ron Howard is like the Dalai Lama of show yeah. business. Yeah. He's the sweetest person on earth. Yeah. I've heard nothing but good things about him from all. Also heard a
2: rumor that the original Bad Boys script was supposed to be for you and John Lovitz. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. That's a totally different movie. Was it just like a buddy like Well, again, I had when I came off SNL, I was had so much heat, I had too much coming at me. Too much heat, yeah. Oh, do you want to follow Letterman on TV Guide? Dana Carvey's going to follow Letterman. Letterman's going to leave cuz he didn't get the Tonight Show spot with the spot that Conan eventually did. Right. So that I thought about for a year to be a late night host. Oh yeah. I was, like, really close to taking that. But I, then I would had two kids at that point. I wasn't sure I had the personality to do four hours of TV a night and be present. I could go home, but they, I'd just be. So I, but that was a close one. My superstar, Brad Gray, was a brilliant negotiator. Yeah. So he goes,
3: I got you a million dollars.
1: <laughs> I go, what do you mean?
3: Well, for the NBC deal. Well,
1: what do I have to do? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm on the fence about doing that.
3: You don't have to do anything. You have no obligation. They're able to say that you might do it, and I got you a million dollars for that.
1: All I had to do was say I was considering it.
3: So I got a million.
1: Everything I got, those days, everything was a million, at least. Nothing. You can do this, it's a million. That's a million. It was just like.
0: So you really are a millionaire. That's good.
1: (laughs) Well, there's a little thing. When they always say celebrity net worth, I go, well, he's got 400 million. So that means he made a billion. (laughs) I pay taxes, and I pay commissions. so. Net is very different, but, you know, it's the goldfish effect that affects all of us. Put a goldfish in a small bowl, it'll grow to a certain point, won't grow anymore. Then you take it out, put it in a big bowl, it'll start growing. So it's, you know, I, I remember saying to my accountant one time, because I was making all this money and there's all this worry around it. Well, you know, we got to move this over here and we go over there. And I go, well, what if, what if I pretended I was middle class? He goes, well, then you'd be rich. <laughs> <laughs> Sign me so, up for that. Can Sign I be an incredibly up. rich middle class guy as opposed to a desperate right on the edge <laughs> Every, trying to get on Forbes? Everything now. you own owns you back. Right. I got to take this shitbox movie and this gig to pay for the ranch. Actually, nope. I just bought a house in Santa Hines. That all being said, that was that from one.
0: last Sunday, right? Yeah. Oh.
1: But that—that that, that is list. just to put resources to play. I don't know. I've. I've I, I hooked up with a business manager ten years ago. I'm not. I have under understand it now that business beats income. Income I keep thirty five percent if I'm lucky. Business sixty five. Just we got to get into business. Yes, dude.
0: Um. Well, with the last few minutes, if it's allowed, can you give us a few? What's on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, loving. I love everything that we just learned from first mm-hmm. idea. Listening to the Beatles all the way up till they're offering yeah. me jobs that I. I don't even have to take, and I get a million. So now that yeah. you have managed your money well, your husband,
1: your dad, you're just mm-hmm. doing your thing, What what
0: is what is out there that
1: you're still looking well, at? Well, right now I'm, I'm having the most fun I've ever had uh, and enjoying it the most. Um, during those formative years when I was really wanting to be home, and a lot of people have to negotiate this, okay? You're in Hollywood, which takes your whole soul and your being or you're on the road or you're doing a movie, you, you know, I'll be, you know, I'm home 10 days a year. Um, I did stand up on my own terms. I would take two months off at Christmas. I wouldn't work at summer and I was being paid, uh, enormous amounts of money to do corporate standup. So oh, I go. made money when I was kind of my alone years where you didn't see me much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was making more money than most movie stars. You know, Jay Leno took a lot of these gigs too. It was the heyday. I get it; still is huge, but it's it's not fun. But it's it's uh, incredibly lucrative. So that's what I did during those years. Now that my sons went into show business, the last five years, uh, we'd like to kind of do what you do. We had no idea. So now I'm at the point where. I just want to do stuff I control that that is me. So it's really this show that I'm doing. um, Meaning the podcast. The podcast is its own separate thing. We we intentionally did it unpartnered for a while because I didn't want to have any influence at all. So it's completely, purely what I want to do. Um, Because for me, um, bringing my siblings on to to talk, people love that about our childhood, really crazy, funny stuff that happened. Mm. Car trips. And so the, the, that's authentically me, that show. So when I did the Instagram Live for the Washington Post, uh, writer, I said, you know me better than anyone who's ever interviewed me. So that's pure fun. I'm doing developing this show that's not out there right now with, with Conan, his company, with my sons. Very excited about that. Cool. And then um, I'm doing this animated show with Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, which uh, it's a lot of work. There's 20 episodes on Netflix. But my character is really fun, and the writing's brilliant. So right now I'm not doing anything I don't want to do. I've done some Zoom corporate dates. Um, You know, those are – I've gotten that down a little bit better. I said, you have to have a guy interview me. I can't just do it to the ether. But right now I'm not tempted to do anything that's not totally under my control. There's nothing I will do uh, for the money. I mean, of course – Look, if there's a corporate date in Vegas, I'll drive out there and do it. I'd never not do those, and I always go all out. I'm never cynical if it's a theater date or a corporate date. Yeah, I figure that's – a lot of guys accept a corporate date and then are pissing and moaning and complaining. I go – then don't do it. Right. But if I go there, I want them to say, no one's ever killed that heart. That's yeah, right, my goal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a little sick. <laughs> it takes so a lot no of talk of Wayne's World 3 is what you're trying to tell us. If Wayne's, <laughs> if someone wants to go do that with what they can do with just a little bit of de-aging, I'm telling you, we know the technology is there. And if, if they want to... i got a special ir- effects
0: guy here already that
1: can help you out. If they want to uh, put it... I'll put the wig on and, and, and do it. You know, party on. Wayne. I mean, I, got, I forgot to take my Flomax. You know, <laughs> everything is middle-aged medication. Garth, duh, come on. I'm getting my arthritis shot tomorrow. <laughs> you know, but uh, those are fun characters. All they do is they just mean fun. Uh, they were the losers in town, lived with their parents, had an AMC Pacer, but they had more fun than right. anyone in the town. That's always a good place to be.
0: I think uh, we can end with that. I mean, yeah. Dude uh 17 hours later
1: mr Carvey, this is amazing it was thank- a longer story than i thought
0: no I, w- I would like to hear more of that thank you for coming for sharing all that stuff with us giving us some insight into your process how you work um i think that's it uh, everybody yeah. if you uh like what you heard today if you're watching it on youtube or you're just listening it on spotify or itunes uh feel free to hit that like subscribe button um i don't know maybe leave a nice comment Um, I think that's it. That wraps us out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just
1: say I was, uh, (laughs) from my side of the fence, the parking was easy. (laughs) The directions were good. Uh, the studio was off the charts. Nice. Oh, Uh, appreciate that. Thank you. The hosts are great. Uh, you know, I feel like I talked too much, but those stories were so ornate, uh, that, uh, I mean, you think about it, like it was a pretty interesting journey that, that 10 years, a lot of, ups and whimsical
0: i like it because you just show failures and i don't mean to like pick on you no (laughs) no yeah there's a there's a a rumor or an idea that you come out here and you work for six months or a year and then you make it and it's like no you gotta
1: fail for a decade yeah
0: and that's where you're gonna learn
1: and they used to ask i don't know the exact quote they would ask walt disney how you doing he goes i've i've uh i've had like 12 failures this year Meaning I'm I'm on the right track.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and you might have the <laughs> so one. I'm
3: doing great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, they didn't want to make Disneyland. They thought it was a dumb idea. Like, why would we make this thing? That's not going to work at all. Yeah. And it's like the one success is what people will remember over the ten failures it took you to get
1: there. Yeah. You want to collect failures. You want to collect bad. You know. That's why I I the reason I stay kind of trim is I just weigh myself every day. I just. Every time I, if I overeat or if I have a pizza, I go. Wow, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a failure today, and I'm gonna embrace it. I'm gonna get on the scale and face it. So you always gotta. Uh, I used to. We'll do to the next one. We'll have to have another episode. Oh, please. On you're the top. Back. Here's my Anytime last. You're At the welcome top back. of my notes, I had these yellow pads with just bullet points. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I said, go to the fear,
0: mm-hmm.
1: on top and big, go right to where you don't want to go. So anything you don't want to do in life, like it's a hot oven, you know, within reason, (laughs) you know, right. sometimes that's where exactly where you need to go uh, because that's a door that if you open it continually, eventually it'll open wide enough. You can walk in.
0: Well, and um, that's uh, my favorite expression from somebody I respect said that what you fear determines the boundaries of your freedom. So if you fear heights, you stay low. If you fear stand up, you'll stay back. If you fear uh, success, you maybe you'll never risk. Um, and it's actually going through the fear
1: that allows you to do the thing well, on the other side. Well, to that story, I developed and have a horrible fear of flying. Really? Yes. Well, I've done years on private jets and regular jets. I, but to your point, I've never walked a flight. I've never turned down a gig because of a flight. And I'll always fly, you know, because my wife said, let's go. This was, We'd never done a trip, just the two of us like this. Let's go to Europe for two weeks. We'll fly to London, we'll do this. So my first impulse was like, Oh, I'm safe and cozy here. I don't know. I you know, but then I my second impulse was like, Well, of course I'm gonna go. Right. Because I said, right. Wow, well, my brain is anxious and afraid. So I have to go right in. Of course I'm going. Even if I don't want to go, I'm going. Yeah. Cause you once that controls you, you know, it limits sl- you. Slippery slope. Yeah. And uh, you know, on my tiptoes I can see eighty, so. I mean, have fun. It goes pretty fast,
0: <laughs> man. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you
1: again for being here. And, fantastic uh, with Dana Carvey. Fantastic, fantastic. you fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back after this break for another seven hours. Yeah. So, <laughs> how
0: f- all right, we are out of here, and here is Tonight. our exit music.